Welcome to the Political Podcast, Policy in a Golden State of Mind. Just a quick programming note before we get started. This week's show is all about the death penalty, and you may have noticed this episode came out about a week later than it was supposed to. The reason is that I made the mistake of assuming that this would be an easy episode, maybe even a short one. Diving into the subject, I thought I had a pretty good grasp on the issues and the headlines and the history, so to my pleasant surprise, the information that came up when I started digging was so much denser and more convoluted and frankly more interesting than I could have imagined at the start. As a result, this episode took a little more time to produce and came out a little longer than the usual 20 minutes. But because this is such a sensitive subject, literally life or death, I didn't want to release anything that I felt was incomplete or didn't do justice to the full issue. So I hope you enjoy the episode, and I promise we will be back on schedule next week. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the other side of the music. podcast policy in a golden state of mind and thank you for joining me for the second episode of our show if you haven't done so already i encourage you to go back and listen to our introductory episode the first entry in our series to learn what this podcast is all about you can also learn more and explore the show at our website politicalpod.blogspot.com and be sure to join us on social media by visiting facebook.com slash political pod and following us on twitter at political pod My name is Tony Mastria, and today we're talking about the death penalty, the ultimate punishment in our justice system, reserved only for those who've been convicted of committing the most egregious offenses. But contrary to what you might expect, our conversation today is less about the people we've put to death and more about the people we haven't, those who've been sentenced to death but never saw the inside of a gas chamber or the site of a lethal injection table. As it stands today, there are roughly 750 people on death row in California, However, in the entirety of the past 40 years, the state has only ever executed 13 of them, most recently in 2006, which was nearly a decade ago. In fact, someone who ends up on death row today is more likely to die from seniority, sickness, or suicide than they are from a state-sponsored execution. The reason this bottleneck exists is that the state's execution process is plagued with inefficiencies. The appeals process for a death sentence in California is notoriously long and costly compared to that of the next preferred option, life in prison without the possibility of parole. In fact, the 13 people executed in California since 1978 each spent an average of 17 years on death row, that is, the time between their sentencing and their actual execution. And it's estimated that maintaining the death penalty, whether we use it or not, costs an additional $180 million per year compared to life without parole, a difference that's larger than the entire annual endowment of UC Santa Cruz. Furthermore, since the 1970s, the death penalty in California has undergone a perpetual barrage of competing judicial challenges, executive actions, legislative maneuvers, and ballot initiatives, causing capital punishment to seesaw between legality and illegality for most of its modern history. 
In the meantime, support for the death penalty in California has dropped and seems to be on a downward trajectory, though support is still above 50%. In addition, over the past 10 years, seven other states have voted to ban capital punishment, bringing the total to 19 nationwide. Most recently, that list includes Nebraska, which, given its conservative reputation on other issues, may not be the first place that comes to mind when thinking of states that are soft on crime. It goes to show that like most issues in criminal justice today, attitudes over the death penalty are beginning to blur the conventional lines of party and ideology. These developments leave the death penalty on unsure footing in California, and the question is not whether the state will resolve its legal issues or whether voters and legislators will decide to ban capital punishment entirely. The question is which will happen first. Either way, we're unlikely to see the end of this contest for quite some time. So in the interest of pondering where we might end up, let's take a look at where we've already been and explore the history of the death penalty in California. The death penalty was first authorized in the state of California by the Criminal Practices Act of 1851, which empowered county sheriffs to carry out executions at the local level. Two decades later, in 1872, the death penalty was incorporated into the state penal code, which set formal requirements for administering these local executions, including who had to be present and where they could take place. And another two decades after that, in 1891, the power to administer the death penalty was shifted from the county to the state. As a result, executions would now be carried out by prison wardens instead of county sheriffs, and would take place at one of the state's two prisons, San Quentin or Folsom. At the time the official method of execution was hanging, the first of which took place at the state level in 1893. Little changed over the next four decades until 1937, when the state legislature changed the official method of execution from hanging to lethal gas for all future sentences. This procedure would take place at the newly constructed gas chamber in San Quentin Prison, which meant Folsom was effectively decommissioned as a death penalty site. In total, just over 300 hangings took place in either San Quentin or Folsom until the last remaining sentence was carried out in 1942. Meanwhile, the state of California began to make use of the gas chamber in 1938, about a year after the procedure was authorized. And over the next three decades, it carried out nearly 200 executions this way until the practice was abruptly halted by the courts in 1967. Unbeknownst to anyone at the time, this development would set off a half-century of litigation, legislation, and executive action that continues to this day. The case at hand dealt with a man named Robert Page Anderson, who was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Anderson's case was automatically appealed to the California Supreme Court, as required by the state penal code for any new death sentence. Initially, the court upheld Anderson's death penalty, but reversed it just two years later following the ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court in another case, Witherspoon v. Illinois. The Witherspoon decision essentially determined that someone could not be ruled ineligible to serve on the jury of a death penalty trial simply for objecting to the use of capital punishment. This gave the California Supreme Court reason to believe that the jury in Anderson's trial had been improperly selected, and therefore that his death sentence had been unconstitutionally delivered. But instead of merely commuting Anderson's punishment, the court took their decision one step further. In 1972, the final phase of the trial, the court abolished the death penalty entirely, citing the practice as a violation of the state's constitutional prohibition against cruel or unusual punishment. As a result, the roughly 100 inmates who occupied death row at the time had their sentences commuted to life in prison. 
While this development would have been controversial on its own, what made it particularly egregious to large segments of the public was who occupied death row at the time, including Charles Manson and Sirhan Sirhan, the man who had been convicted of assassinating Senator Robert Kennedy in Los Angeles in 1968. And in case you were wondering, this explains why Charles Manson, despite the brutality of his offenses, has been granted 12 parole hearings since his original conviction in 1971 most recent of which occurred just three years ago in 2012. At the time of the Anderson decision, life without the possibility of parole did not exist, so life with the possibility of parole was the only legitimate alternative to the death penalty. Needless to say, the public was not pleased. In the same year, 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a similar ruling in the case of Furman v. Georgia, lending further support to the notion that the death penalty constituted cruel and unusual punishment. Observing that states appeared to administer the death penalty arbitrarily and often disproportionately on minorities, the High Court concluded that the practice represented a clear violation of the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments. This essentially outlawed capital punishment nationwide until states could prove that they had eliminated the possibility of such arbitrary or discriminatory imposition. The people of California wasted no time in rising to this challenge, though perhaps not in the way the court envisioned or intended. On November 7, 1972, over two-thirds of California voters passed Proposition 17, an amendment to the state constitution clarifying that the death penalty did not constitute either cruel or unusual punishment. This lazy but deviously brilliant workaround was intended to nullify constitutional concerns arising from both the Anderson and Furman cases. Thus, in the span of a single year, the death penalty in California had whipsawed from acceptable to unacceptable and back to acceptable again. And while this turn of events seemed like a clear victory for supporters of capital punishment, opponents would work to ensure that executions in California faced a long and arduous road to resumption. It would take another two decades, not until 1992, before the state of California put another inmate to death. In the intervening time, California underwent a series of judicial decisions, legislation, and ballot initiatives that helped refine and clarify its use of capital punishment. For example, in order to curtail some of the randomness in the death penalty's use, the state legislature voted in 1973 to make capital punishment mandatory for certain offenses, including murder during a robbery, kidnapping if the victim dies, and treason. While this may have made the sentencing process more consistent and less discriminatory, it also prevented juries from considering some potentially consequential factors in the case, including age and mental capacity. And because defendants were barred from submitting this information, the death penalty was once again declared unconstitutional by the California Supreme Court in 1976. As had occurred several years earlier, this obliged the court to commute the sentences of the roughly 70 people who occupied death row at the time. In response, the state legislature modified the law to allow the submission of mitigating evidence and made the death penalty a possible, but not mandatory, punishment for its list of capital offenses. It also updated the California Penal Code to include life in prison without the possibility of parole as an alternative. And finally, in 1978, California voters passed Proposition 7, which expanded on the work of the legislature and created the list of capital offenses we still use today. By the time capital punishment was reinstated in the late 70s, California's death row was empty due to the latest round of commutations by the state Supreme Court. And because the time between sentencing and execution is notoriously long, 
it would take some time before anyone would be put to death again in California. That occurred on August 4, 1992, when Robert Alton Harris was sent to the gas chamber at San Quentin, the first person to be put to death by the state in over 25 years. Shortly thereafter, the state legislature announced a change to its death penalty protocol, allowing condemned inmates to choose their preferred method of execution, lethal gas or the newly developed lethal injection. On August 24, 1993, David Edwin Mason became the last person to die by lethal gas in California since the punishment was later ruled unconstitutional by U.S. District Judge Marilyn Patel. Judge Patel found that the gas chamber constituted cruel and unusual punishment, a decision making lethal injection California's sole method of execution since then. California carried out a total of 13 executions between 1992 and 2006, including 11 by lethal injection. Inmate Michael Morales was within several hours of becoming number 12 on that list before his execution was stayed by the courts in February 2006. Morales challenged the legality of his pending execution on the grounds that California's lethal injection protocol violated his Eighth Amendment protections against cruel and unusual punishment. The issue at hand was whether the first compound in the state's three-drug cocktail, sodium theopentol, was enough to induce unconsciousness before the next two drugs were administered. If not, and if the inmate were conscious during the procedure, then the injection of pancuronium bromide and potassium chloride, which cause paralysis, halt respiration, and induce cardiac arrest, would create a substantial risk of pain. U.S. District Judge Jeremy Fogel sided with Morales, noting several deficiencies in California's lethal injection protocol. These include problems with training, supervision, oversight, record-keeping, site conditions, and administration of the procedure itself. But Judge Fogel advised that these shortcomings could be fixed and urged the state to review the procedure before executions could continue. As ordered by Governor Schwarzenegger, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation then went through several years of review before its new regulations were submitted and approved in August 2010. And once again, the state came within hours of executing its 14th inmate since 1978, Albert Brown, when the procedure was summarily halted by the courts. The difference this time was that unlike the Michael Morales situation five years earlier, which involved a single case and a limited set of issues, the state now faced multiple cases entangling a thicket of issues simultaneously. This includes whether the state's new regulations had to be reviewed by a judge before taking effect, and why the Department of Corrections hadn't considered a one-drug protocol in its initial review. As halting and messy as this issue has been throughout California's history, the question now seemed effectively impassable. So it may have come as little surprise to observers when, last year, in July 2014, capital punishment in the state was ruled unconstitutional because its slow, staggered implementation rendered it essentially random. In an unprecedented decision, U.S. District Judge Cormac Carney said, quote, The dysfunctional administration of California's death penalty system has resulted and will continue to result in an inordinate and unpredictable period of delay preceding an inmate's actual execution, end quote. In the years since Judge Carney issued this judgment, little has been done to alleviate his concerns. In fact, California's death penalty woes may have been complicated even further by an incident that occurred about a thousand miles to the east. In April 2014, Clayton Lockett was scheduled to undergo lethal injection in Oklahoma, which uses a three-drug cocktail similar to the one used in California. 
Lockett was pronounced unconscious 10 minutes after receiving a dose of the sedative midazolam, but began gasping and writhing in pain shortly thereafter. To the shock of officials and media members in attendance, this horrific spectacle continued for over half an hour before Lockett died of a heart attack on the gurney. The incident served as a rallying cry for death penalty opponents and even brought the issue to the Supreme Court this year. While the court ruled that Oklahoma's use of midazolam was indeed constitutional, the state of California nonetheless agreed to review its own regulations within four months of the ruling. This decision was actually spurred by the efforts of death penalty advocates who urged the state to adopt a single drug protocol in the interest of resuming executions. So when this new set of proposals comes out in October 2015, it may offer a rare moment of unity for both advocates and reformers of capital punishment. In the meantime, that brings our story to today and the concerns that remain unanswered about the death penalty in our society, including whether the practice actually works for the purposes intended. To answer that question, it may help if we unpack the more fundamental discussion of why we punish people in the first place. Just scratching the surface of this issue, you'll see there are basically four justifications in criminal law for why we impose penalties on people who break the law. The first is rehabilitation, the idea that punishment can correct whatever character flaw, actual or otherwise, led someone to commit a crime in the first place. This is actually where the word penitentiary comes from, the root word being penitence, which means the act of feeling or showing sorrow and regret for having done something wrong. Rehabilitation is an admirable goal in our justice system, but doesn't quite apply to the death penalty, since the punishment, by design, denies inmates the opportunity to reform themselves and re-enter society. And in fairness to both sides, it may indeed be the case that some people are simply incapable of leading safe, stable, productive lives outside prison walls, whether or not they're sentenced to death. The second justification for punishment is incapacitation, the idea that we ought to lock up offenders in order to take them off the street and prevent them from committing future crimes. This rationale holds merit, but isn't especially unique to the death penalty. It's probably safe to assume that anyone convicted of a crime who faces a probable death sentence would, at the very least, receive a sentence of life in prison, which, by definition, takes them off the street indefinitely. And notwithstanding the two inmates who escaped from a facility in upstate New York earlier this year, prison escapes remain extremely rare. So it may not be much of a stretch to say that someone serving life in prison has about as much chance of seeing the outside world as someone sitting on death row, making incapacitation a less compelling argument in the case of capital punishment specifically. The third justification for punishment is retribution, and this takes our conversation somewhat outside the sphere of empirical public policy and into the realm of moral conviction. The rationale here is that someone who commits a crime ought to be punished because they deserve to be, an eye for an eye, you might call it. In all of our institutions, we as humans seek to achieve some sense of balance, and that includes balance in our justice system. When one person inflicts harm on another, they're seen to have caused an imbalance in the moral universe, and the only way to reestablish that equilibrium is to impose a penalty proportional to the crime committed. So at its core, retribution is both coolly transactional and viscerally primal, appealing to both our heads and our hearts. And that's why it remains such a convincing rationale not only for capital punishment, but for punishment in general. 
With regard to proportionality, some advocates have even suggested that the death penalty can actually be merciful relative to the brutality of the original crime. Whether or not you agree, it's clear that retribution will continue to drive our understanding of this issue for the foreseeable future. And because it can be such an emotional aspect of this discussion, all we can say for certain is that we won't break any new ground on this podcast. And that brings us to the fourth justification for punishment, deterrence. The notion that we can use our justice system not only to punish people who have already committed offenses, but also to discourage others from committing them in the future. The idea here is that someone who's thinking about committing a crime will see someone else get punished for that crime and decide that the possible penalty is not worth the risk of being caught. With capital punishment specifically, deterrence theory says that someone who's thinking about committing a capital offense, like murder or treason, may decide against it if they themselves don't want to risk being killed, essentially self-preservation. Along with retribution, deterrence may be the most commonly cited justification in the debate over capital punishment. It's undoubtedly a compelling rationale in theory, but in practice it doesn't lend itself to being quite so effective. Setting aside the observation that deterrence theory assumes people are perfectly rational, which we know they aren't, capital punishment doesn't generally operate by the principles that make this concept viable anyway. Criminologists dating back to the 1700s have typically identified three basic tenets that determine if a particular penalty is an effective deterrent, certainty, swiftness, and severity. Certainty is the likelihood that you'll be punished for a particular crime, Swiftness is the speed at which you'll receive that punishment after committing the crime, and severity is the intensity of the punishment received. Now, it probably goes without saying that the death penalty fulfills the severity side of this formula. It is, after all, the highest and harshest punishment allowed by law in the United States. The question then is whether it meets the criteria for certainty and swiftness and thereby serves as an effective deterrent. The answer, at least in California, is not very promising. The state currently has about 750 people on death row, yet over the span of the last four decades, we've only ever executed 13 of them. In fact, since 1978, over 100 people on California's death row have died from something other than the death penalty, including 68 people who died of natural causes. The staggering ratio between the number of people who are sentenced to death and the number of people who are actually put to death makes it extremely uncertain that anyone will ever receive their intended punishment. In his 2014 decision, U.S. District Judge Cormac Carney described a death sentence in California as, quote, life in prison with the remote possibility of death, end quote. This lack of certainty severely deflates the effectiveness of capital punishment as a deterrent. Nor does California's death penalty demonstrate the swiftness required of a good deterrent either. When Robert Alton Harris in 1992 became the first person put to death in California in a quarter century, it had already taken 13 years between his conviction and his execution. And believe it or not, his case was actually on the low end of that spectrum. Among the 13 people executed since reinstating the death penalty, the average inmate spent 17 and a half years waiting on death row. To put that into perspective, that's about as much time as it takes for a student to enter kindergarten and graduate college with a four-year degree, not swift in any sense of the word. And since the 750 people sitting on death row right now have already spent an average of 17 and a half years there with no new executions in sight, this problem is only going to get worse. 
Absent the pillars of swiftness and certainty, it's hard to imagine how much of a deterrent California's death penalty can really be, no matter how severe it is. And even if you aren't moved by concerns over judicial efficiency or philosophical debates on criminal justice theory, just remember that this issue affects your wallet, too. According to a study by U.S. Ninth Circuit Judge Arthur Alarcon and Loyola Law School professor Paula Mitchell, the state of California spends an additional $180 million per year directly on maintaining capital punishment, whether or not we actually execute anyone. That's $180 million we could avoid spending altogether if the people on death row were serving life in prison instead. The reason capital punishment is so costly is that death penalty trials are substantially longer and more expensive, not to mention there are specific costs associated with maintaining an active death row, including additional staffing, enhanced security, and extra facilities. In fact, since 1978, the state of California has spent an estimated $4 billion on a punishment we've used exactly 13 times. So now the question is, where do we go from here? As we've seen, the state of California has, throughout its history, taken incremental steps to make capital punishment generally fairer and more humane. But in spite of these reforms, the state has failed to make the process more efficient. As a result, the scale of the problem, whether you measure it in people or dollars or delays, has ballooned beyond anyone's hope for a simple solution. On the one hand, California could strike at the root of the problem by attempting to expedite the judicial process. This approach, which has been undertaken successfully by several states with relatively efficient capital punishment systems, would help reduce the delay between sentencing and execution and begin to clear the backlog of cases, perhaps even trimming the number of people we have on death row. But even if we adopted this strategy today, it's far from certain that it would have an impact. The state of California is currently rewriting its protocol on lethal injection, which won't be due out for several months. And even when the state does release these new regulations, they won't be approved for some time and will likely face stringent legal challenges. So our official method of execution remains in limbo for the foreseeable future, and unless California decides to revive the firing squad as Utah did earlier this year, it doesn't have any viable alternatives on the horizon. More likely, then, is the possibility that California will choose to scrap capital punishment altogether. While the death penalty retains a majority of public support in the state, this position has slowly degraded over time, likely due to lower levels of crime and shifting attitudes on criminal justice in general. In the 2012 election, Proposition 34 gave Californians the opportunity to replace capital punishment with life in prison without the possibility of parole. And while this initiative was ultimately defeated, it fell to a relatively narrow loss of just four points, 48 to 52 percent. Given the current trajectory of public opinion, it's not hard to imagine these numbers flipping at some point in the future. And for what it's worth, 48 to 52 percent is roughly the same margin by which Prop 8, California's anti-gay marriage amendment, passed in 2008, just a few years before public opinion in the state reversed to embrace marriage equality. Electoral results may be the only parallel we can draw with any certainty between these two issues, but at the very least, our history here suggests that public attitudes on an issue can change rapidly and perhaps unexpectedly in just a short amount of time. If California did vote to eliminate the death penalty, it would join 19 other states and, frankly, most of the world in doing so. According to Amnesty International, 140 other countries have eliminated capital punishment entirely 
and the U.S. is one of only two countries in the developed world, along with Japan, that continue to use the death penalty on a regular basis. Because so much of what we practice and believe about capital punishment is based on precedent, history may again serve as our guide in predicting where this issue will take us next. Nearly six decades ago, in a case wholly unrelated to the death penalty at the time, Chief Justice Earl Warren articulated an idea that would become the cornerstone of our understanding on this delicate issue. In the 1958 decision of Trop v. Dulles, the court ruled that no American could have his or her citizenship revoked as penalty for a crime, since this practice violated the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice Warren said that the Eighth Amendment, quote, must draw its meaning from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society, end quote. Just as this principle has been invoked to contest our methods of execution, from hangings to gas chambers to lethal injections, it may come to pass that our evolving standards of decency eventually target the death penalty itself. That's our show. Thank you for joining me on the second episode of the Political Podcast. You can find all the source material from this episode and more by visiting our website at politicalpod.blogspot.com. And if you're new to the show, you can subscribe and receive new episodes as soon as they're available by visiting our profiles on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Last but not least, you can connect with the show on social media by going to facebook.com slash politicalpod and following us on Twitter at politicalpod. I love getting your comments, questions, suggestions, and even corrections, so please don't hesitate to send them our way. Finally, a quick preview of next week's episode. You may have missed it, but this week was the state of California's 165th birthday, and I have to say, it doesn't look a day over 145. On September 9, 1850, California was admitted as the 31st state in the Union, so next week's show is all about statehood, including how California became a state and how people have been trying to break it up into more states since the very beginning. Apparently, California loved becoming a state so much it's tried to do it again over 200 times. It's going to be a really fun show, and I hope you'll join me for it. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week. Bye.